So John chapter 20, starting at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would open our eyes and soften our hearts. We pray that you would show us Jesus, that you would teach us the gospel, that you would make us your people so that we would be formed into the, the people you created and called us to be, who communicate your goodness and glory, because you deserve it, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, the Apostle John was not just one of your regular old run-of-the-mill 12 disciples of Jesus. You see, John was one of Jesus' inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. These three were sort of the main leaders of the original 12, and they got to see some things the other nine didn't get to see. They saw Jesus raise a girl from the dead while the rest had to stay behind. They got to stand on the mountain and hear the Father speak to Jesus from a cloud as his form changed and his clothes became radiant and intensely white. And they were the only ones who joined him at his darkest and most agonizing moments of prayer just before he was betrayed on his way to the cross. They had insight and awareness. The rest didn't. So the Apostle John had a very special relationship with Jesus. But it wasn't just because he had a front row seat to see a few things the others didn't. No, here's what John really wants us to see. He wants us to see what he really saw and what those around him really saw, which is not not just that Jesus wielded miraculous power 
simply to prove that he was from God, but that Jesus came to wield, to steward God's power on your behalf to achieve a miracle far more amazing than anything you've ever needed or wanted in life. To open your blind eyes, to resuscitate your dead heart, and to write an entirely new story of who you are when you have Jesus. Perhaps that's why in in this book where John tells us how Jesus did this for him, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Think about what this really means. It means that John had not only seen Jesus' power from afar, but he had seen and experienced that miraculous power up close and personally in a way that changed him, in a way that changed his story so radically that he changed his name to the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's John's way of saying, this book is how Jesus opened my eyes. It's how he resuscitated my dead heart. It's how he rewrote my story. I'm an entirely new person. I have a new name. So come and see how this happened to me and to others who were with me. So we pick up John's story today in verse 1 of chapter 20, where he says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So John begins here by telling us that it was Sunday, the first day of the week. Referring to the same exact moment, Matthew says that it was dawn. Mark says it was at sunrise. Luke says at early dawn. Clearly, looking back, all four gospel writers were in agreement that something new was afoot. In fact, John and the first Christians began to refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day, because it would turn out that this first day was the first chapter in this new story that Jesus was writing in the lives of his followers, including, named here in this verse, Mary Magdalene. John introduces us to another person with a new name and story. She was called Mary Magdalene because she was named Mary and she was from Magdala. It's a town on the western shores of Galilee. She was one of the early followers of Jesus whom he had healed of seven demons. She helped provide material support for Jesus' ministry. She became a prominent leader among Jesus' followers. And she appears in the gospel at important moments in the story, like just the Friday before at the foot of the cross and then here at the tomb. So she discovers it's empty and assumes that someone has stolen Jesus' body, whether grave robbers or perhaps the Jewish authorities. Verse 2. So she ran. You'll see that there's a lot of running going on here. The tomb was empty, so she ran and went to Simon Peter, the leader of the original 12, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John referring to himself 
here. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John himself, referring to himself there again, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, lots of running going on here because duh, someone stolen Jesus's body. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first because apparently the disciple whom Jesus loved was also the disciple who worked out, I guess. Actually, it's likely that John was quite a bit younger than Peter, that's all. So the body's gone, everyone's freaking out, they're all running around and John gets there first, verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John waits to go in, not just because he had to wait for slowpoke Peter, but as a sign of respect because Peter was the leader of the disciples, but also because John's no dummy, he waits before going in so that if someone had stolen the body, he had a credible witness of his innocence. This and other details like this, like the running and the folded face cloth being separate from the other cloths and who went in and who didn't and what time of the day, all that may seem weird to us, but those details are helpful because they were verifiable by those reading these first accounts. So John's, he's, he's pretty aware of what he's doing. He waits for Peter before going in so that if someone had stolen the body, he had a witness of his own innocence. Verse six, then Simon Peter came following him because he's slow and he went into the tomb. So he saw the linen cloths lying there, he referring to Peter. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself, which is a, another piece of evidence that the body, body probably hadn't been stolen. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, because again, he was the buff one. So John also went in, he saw, look at this, and believed, which is more significant than it seems because, verse nine, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Meaning that they didn't understand until this moment what he had been saying all along about doing the Father's will to free the captives and to return sight to the blind. Meaning they didn't understand when he said, destroy the temple and I will build it in three days. Meaning they didn't even track with him when he said, plainly as the Gospel of Mark says, the, suf, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. I mean, he gave them the exact number of days it would take for him to rise again after he died. And they were so blind and so hard-hearted and so in love with the world and their sin through which they perceived the world, as Jesus had told them earlier in John, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They were so enamored with the world and themselves and their sin that when he actually did die, it took the empty tomb for them to see. They hadn't understood what Jesus had been doing all along. 
that what he had been doing all along was far bigger and more powerful and immensely more profound than they could have possibly conceived, which is to say, friends, if the first disciples of Jesus who lived with him and followed him everywhere and memorized his teachings, if they had to look into that empty tomb and to see for themselves the power over death and sin that was embodied in this Jesus they followed, what makes you think you will be any different? Only by the power of a savior who rises from the dead can you begin to understand that you haven't the slightest hope of defeating sin and death on your own. Verse 10 says, then the disciples went back to their homes, which seems at first like a pretty weird way to end this section as if they were just sort of like, huh, that was interesting. And then they carried on almost dismissive of the news, but verse 10, is one, an indication that they were gonna take the good news, words used on purpose, back to their homes, and two, a transition and contrast to the rest of the story in verse 11. Look at this. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, who's not ready to leave, she's not there yet, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So for Mary here, something is tragically wrong. Jesus' body is gone, and she is so distraught that she hasn't yet seen what buff John and slow Peter have already realized, namely that Jesus hasn't been stolen. <laughs> He's on the loose. And notice here in verse 11 and following here how, how Jesus' story, I'm sorry, John's story of Jesus' resurrection takes a more intimate turn with Mary. The first 10 verses are mo more focused on the facts of the matter. But here we see more closely and, and more personally how the empty tomb is not Jesus proving he's God's son only, but it's, but it's Jesus doing more than that, wielding his power on our behalf. He's on the loose to change the narrative of sin that defeats. You see, the tomb, the empty tomb, is Jesus stewarding, wielding the eternal and supernatural power of God on our behalf for us, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, directing the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The empty tomb is the power of Jesus applied to our lives, changing the narrative of our story of sin that defeats to a story of his sinless life that saves. So notice here, how John begins to tell the story as if Mary's looking for Jesus, but really, he's the one out looking for her. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. John tells this like, like they were there the whole time, sort of matter-of-factly like, 
Oh yeah, by the way, there were a couple angels there in the tomb that apparently slow Peter and I missed. Weird. So God sends them, these angels, which I'm getting from the definition of the word angel, which just means messenger, and from the fact that throughout scripture, the presence of angels means, don't miss this, that heaven is deeply and intimately involved in the event. So these angels sent from God show that he is deeply and intimately involved here. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Notice that she is apparently so distraught and, and so unaware and so in her own head, like the disciples had been, that not only does she continue to assume she's seeing correctly that someone has stolen Jesus's body, but she seems to fail to even notice, I don't know, there are two angels sitting on the bench in the tomb where Jesus' body had been. Her eyes and her heart are so blinded by her own grief and her tears. And don't miss this, the incorrect ideas about who Jesus was and what he really came to do, namely to turn a place of death into a place that's given her life. She's so in her own preconceptions that she doesn't notice the significance of two angels in the place where Jesus' body used to be. Like, hello, Mary, you're looking for Jesus who was in this space and now he's not, and we two messengers from God are here instead. You tracking, Mary? Apparently not. So if the angels don't work, well, I guess we'll pull out all the stops and try Jesus himself. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So she saw Jesus, but didn't know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? <laughs> well, supposing him to be the gardener, for goodness sake, Mary, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I will take care of his body. Now let's think about this situation for a minute. Being around other followers of Jesus for a couple years or so didn't, didn't do it. Being a very close follower and a financial supporter of Jesus who, who studied and who memorized his teachings didn't do it. Being first to the tomb early in the morning didn't do it. John's newfound understanding and his belief that she saw didn't do it. Angels sitting where Jesus' body hadn't done it. Seeing Jesus the first time didn't do it. John is very clearly putting together this entire narrative, starting with verse 1, all the way through to this point to make clear that it is this moment in verse 16 that finally does it. Jesus said to her, calling her by name, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, which is her mother tongue, she said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Finally, her eyes are opened to see him, and she calls him great teacher, which I think John includes to show she's still apparently trying to hold on to some of her 
previous conceptions of Jesus because she tries to kneel and bow down and embrace him somehow, which is fine. But John reports Jesus saying this to her in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, which by the way, is the first reported instance of social distancing. Do not cling to me is a way for Jesus to basically say that their old relationship of student teacher has now changed. And she's going to have to move forward discovering this new Holy Spirit enabled relationship that is the case now that she has Jesus as risen Savior. He says, do not cling to me for I have not yet, not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them as the first witness of the good news of new life in the risen Savior Jesus, I am ascending to my Father, Jesus speaking here, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I'm going to take my rightful place as King of Kings and as risen Lord. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and she announced that, that he had said these things to her. Friends, very simply, the good news is that even though the story of our lives is that we have offended a holy and a perfect God who deserves all glory and demands perfect obedience, the empty tomb speaks of his power to rewrite that story. You see, when Jesus speaks your name, everything changes. When the risen Savior calls to you and says, whom are you seeking? You are at a crossroads, a decision point, a moment that is the difference between condemnation in your own sin, enslavement to that sin, and a deep and intimate and, and personal relationship with the God of the universe who created you and who loves you and who offers you forever freedom that can entirely rewrite the story of your past, your fears, your shame, and your sin that previously condemned you before him. You see, friends, only an empty tomb that reveals the Savior's power over your sin and the death you deserve can write for you an Easter story that has as its narrator the Jesus who is always saying, I am enough. I have overcome your sin for you. Let's pray, friends. Father, indeed, we ask that you would continue to show us Jesus and what he's achieved and who he really is and what the empty tomb means. That we have access boldly and confidently to say that we've had our stories of, of sin and shame and guilt rewritten because you've lived for us the perfect sinless life in the body in the flesh of Jesus and that when he died was sacrificed on that good Friday he was a an atonement 
he made up for our sin as a perfect sacrifice. And so then on this Easter day that we recognize the first day of this new chapter in our lives, if we call you Lord and Savior, that he is for us the power over sin and death that we can't be for ourselves. Father, teach us through this holy word that you've given to us that commands, that demands our obedience because you're a God who's worthy. Father, forgive us for our sin. Give us new life in Jesus. Make available to us because of the empty tomb a power we cannot achieve for ourselves that comes from you, that you have given for us in Jesus everything we could ever need so that he is enough, so that he rewrites our story, so that we could leave this place tonight, this morning, in this moment, around the table that you invite us to, to say yes to what you've given to us. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.